Amen. If I can say this in a way that doesn't sound weird, if I die soon, can you sing that at my funeral, please? It's a beautiful song. A tremendous truth for us to meditate on. Please take your Bible and turn to Ecclesiastes once again. Chapter 2, we're going to finish out chapter 2 today. And Solomon has been looking at various parts of life at work and pleasure and learning or wisdom and knowledge and drawing conclusions about what really matters in life, about what really lasts. So he's zooming out, kind of like when you get on an airplane and you start to look down below you out the window and see what the roads that you drove on on the way to the airport get smaller and smaller before long you can't even see them. Maybe they're just a thin black line in the midst of city lights. He's taking that perspective, he's zooming out further and further to help us see what actually is important, what actually lasts, what actually matters. And he's considering the meaning of life. So in today's passage, this author will circle back around to the first two parts that he talked about. He talked about our work in the first part of chapter one. He talked about wisdom in the second part of chapter one. And in both of those, he said, vanity of vanities. These things are enigmatic. They are confusing. They are a vapor. They pass away quickly. They seem meaningless. There's all kinds of ways we can say this. And so, you know, if we say that, to say vanity of vanities means enigma of enigmas. An enigma is something that's confusing or mysterious or hard to understand. And he's saying life is like that. Life is this enigma. And he said that was true about work. So let me show you how he's kind of structuring this. If I had thought a little bit more ahead, maybe I would have put this in the PowerPoint, but maybe you can just imagine there's something hanging in air right here. That's work. And then he talks about wisdom, and he talks about pleasure. That was last week's passage. Now today he's going to talk about wisdom and work. So he's going back to where he started. He's doing this, this uh, X-shaped pattern. We call it a chiasm. And so in these first two chapters, he's talking about work, then wisdom, then pleasure, then wisdom again, then work again. So he's start going back to where he started and making comments about what effect these parts of our lives have and how these parts of our lives strike us. Let me read chapter 2, beginning of verse 12, down through the end of the chapter in Ecclesiastes. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head. The fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all of my toil, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not 
toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Two years ago, one of our sons uh, received for Christmas a uh, rather large Lego set, you know, one of these 500 or 1,000 piece Lego sets. And he was elated by this. It was what he had asked for. It was what he had wanted for a long time. And we were delighted to give, you know, we're delighted as parents to give our kids good gifts like this. And so we enjoyed seeing the look on his face as he opened his Legos and then he immediately tore into the box and started building it and went through that, that day. I think it was actually a couple days before Christmas, but let's just you know, assume that going through this whole festivity-filled day, building his Legos, taking breaks only to go to the bathroom or to eat, and even that, you know, you might be able to do two things at the same time. And so just continuing on with this, and finally, after many tears and pleas for help from us as his parents, we would pitch in and help him build this. Finally, he finished it right before bed. So Then he went and got in bed and took his Legos up with him to the top bunk of the bunk beds so that he could sleep with this new masterly, masterfully created design. And then the next morning he woke up and screamed when he looked down and saw all the Legos all over the floor because they had fallen off his bed and shattered. And so then you feel like as a parent, okay, maybe we shouldn't have let him sleep with them, but I mean, he loved them so much. Maybe he should have realized he should have slept with them. And you just start to think, well, what was the point of all of that labor yesterday? All those tears of him saying, I don't know how to get past this point. And put all that time in, only for it to be completely shattered on his bedroom floor. It felt like an enormous waste of time. This is probably similar to the way that many construction workers feel in places where they host the Olympics. You look at, say, Sochi, Russia, or Beijing, or Athens, Greece, or these places where over the last 15, 20 years, they've hosted the Olympics, and they build what they call Olympic villages with thousands of nice apartments for the you know, athletes and also important officials and other people to live in for a couple of weeks. And they build all these sporting equipment facilities, you know, like say an ice skating rink in a place where they've never had one before or long jumping tracks where they've never had one before. And they build all these facilities and then the Olympics come and go and they're never used again. And you can find entire websites, you can waste a lot of time there, looking at the buildings that are sitting there completely falling apart, used for everything but the Olympics, if they're used at all. And if I were a construction worker and I just spent backbreaking years trying to get these buildings ready in time for the Olympics, I would say that was a waste of time. Have you ever felt that way about your own life, about your own accomplishments? Have you ever felt like this just doesn't feel like it's getting me anywhere? I'm just spinning my wheels, so to speak. I'm like a hamster in his cage, running this 
rat race, and it doesn't feel like I'm making any progress. When I die, no one's even going to remember that I died, based on the fact that most of us can't remember our great-grandparents' names. Even in these inequities of life, and what feels like the futility of life, God invites us to respond in a particular way to these hardships, to these enigmas. He invites us to receive the good gifts that he gives us as a gracious gift from his hand. He invites you and enables you to find joy even in your labors, even in your pursuit of knowledge and wisdom. This passage shows that it shows various possible responses to these enigmas of life, these hardships of life, the vapor of life. It tells us that we can hate life, you can despair, or you can enjoy life. Maybe some of us have done all three of those things at some point recently, but the reason even famous and wealthy people like Robin Williams and David Foster Wallace and Philip Seymour Hoffman and countless other wealthy and famous people end their lives by their own hands is because, it seems, this life is futile. So it just doesn't seem to add up anymore. Why would I keep living this way? But the Christian who finds joy and uh, finds his joy in God and in God's good gifts, the things of earth we could call them, is the happiest, most content person you will ever meet. And what Solomon is writing today is a call for us as God's people to enjoy life as a gift from his hand. In this first section, verses 12 through 17, Solomon tells us that living wisely feels like a waste of time. Isn't this just encouraging? On a gray, rainy day, living life wisely feels like a waste of time. You know, you guys were finishing college. Hope you enjoyed it. It was a waste of time. He says in verse 12, he turned to consider wisdom and madness, which is a word that he uses repeatedly throughout Ecclesiastes, and folly. This is describing someone who has lost his mind, someone who's mad and is a fool, is someone who just roams around. Maybe you've seen people like this. They don't seem to have any direction in their lives. They're just muttering to themselves, just kind of tripping around. They have no point in living. And Solomon's comparing, is it better to live wisely or is it better to live like that? And he says it's better to live wisely. He does draw that conclusion in verse 13. He says, I saw there's more gain in wisdom as there's more gain in light. It's better to be able to walk around with you know, seeing what's in front of you so you don't trip over a stick or you know, something, a branch in your path. It's better to have light than it is to be dark, to have darkness. And it's better to be wise than to be a fool. No one wants to live like that. No one wants to experience the consequences of life like that. He says the wise person has his eyes in his head, which is a way of saying he looks where he's going. He checks to see if it's a good path. You're walking through a, a you know, pasture, you're going to be careful to make sure you don't step in a hole or you don't step on cow manure or you don't you know, get stung by that wasp nest. Like, there's just a variety of obstacles. And he's saying it's good to be looking out in front of you. It's better to be looking out in front of you and to live wisely than to just roam through that field and sprain your ankle in the hole or step on the bee's nest and all kinds of problems can arise. It is better to be wise. But then... The middle of verse 14 is kind of the turning point in his thinking. And it's almost as if he takes a sigh and he pauses. And he says, I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. 
whether you were a wise scholar, a person with two PhDs, all the honors in Oxford University, let's say, that person's still going to die. Just like the guy who gets drunk every single night and says, who cares? I'm just going to die. Yeah, you are just going to die. And he says, how is this? How does this make sense? What is the point of living wisely? It feels like a waste of time. I'm going to end up in the same plot of ground as that guy who lives like a fool. The same event that he refers to here is death, is the fact that you are going to be buried just like everyone else. He says, I said in my heart, that's a phrase he keeps saying, he's pondering these realities of life. He says, I concluded that this is vanity. This is an enigma. Of the wise, as of the fool, there's no enduring remembrance. And maybe you can say, well, I can think of some exceptions to that. Like, you know, people are still talking about Aristotle or Augustine or Plato or even more recently, someone like Thomas Jefferson. See, there's, there's some lasting remembrance. Okay. But, I mean, even I would assume our friends at Moody walk past buildings every single day that have people's names on them. I'm assuming that. And I assume you know nothing about those people. There's no lasting remembrance, even if you get your name on a college building. You know, I read in a book about a guy who went to Vanderbilt University, and he lived in a dorm named after somebody who had, who had no idea who he was, and then they d- demolished that dorm after he graduated and built another dorm in its place named after somebody else. So even if you get your, your name on a building, what good does it really do? And this is the reality that Solomon here is contemplating and saying, boy, this just feels like a waste of time. You know, when I was in college, I was not part of the who's who on campus, in anybody's mind or officially. And they had this official who's who of the class of 2006, so 15 years since I graduated college, to the day, actually. Uh, Clap, clap on my back. But nonetheless, um, I was not the big man on campus. But even the big people on campus, I don't know who they are anymore. I don't know where they are. I don't know that anybody's actually accomplishing big and bad things for God's kingdom or for any other kingdom for that matter. We're all just normal people going about our lives. Most of us, even those who were the big people on campus, probably go through the same hardships that you're going through and have to deal with the same sin and temptation that you're going through. And so this is my motivational speech to all of you guys. It's not going to matter whether you're who's who or not. Uh, It does not matter. Living wisely feels like a waste of time. And so then he returns in this next section to where he started this whole book with, and that's this idea of toil. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 3, he said, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What do you get out of your work? That's his question there, and he comes back to that here, and he says, I hated all my toil. How do you know he's talking about work here? talking about toil here, because in verse 18 to verse 26, he uses the word toil nine times. I mean, this is not hard to observe. He is telling you, this is what you're talk- we're talking about here. We're talking about work. We're saying work is empty. Work is an enigma. It feels like a waste of my time to work hard. He says, for instance, in verse 18, one of the reasons, here's, here's the reason, actually, for why work is feels like a waste of time, is that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. It's kind of a humbling thought, isn't it? Even if you're the CEO of a company, some of you know Howard Schultz, he was the the CEO, I think the founder of Starbucks. 
And I think around, say, 2005 or 2007, somewhere in there, he let somebody else have the reins to the company and then nearly blew it up. And so then he had to come back in and he's still the CEO now. He had to kind of take the reins over again. What he realized was, I did everything I could to get this company off to a good start and get it into all the big cities in the world and some small towns too. And then somebody else takes over and it all starts to go down the drain. So let me come back in and make it good again. Howard Schultz, no offense to, his, to him, is going to die one day. What happens to Starbucks then is not my concern. It won't be his then at that point either. But the point is you have to leave what you invested in to somebody else. And that is a very humbling thought. And it was troubling Solomon so much that he concludes that this also feels like a waste of time. To work hard feels like a waste of time. And we need to remember, this sounds like somebody complaining on like Dr. Phil or Oprah or somebody about the enigmas of life. And what we have to remember is there is a Christian perspective here, and, and he is going to draw a good conclusion here at the end of this passage. But what does the rest of the Bible say about our work? Think of Colossians 3, where Paul urges Christians, whatever you do, do it with your whole heart. Invest all you have, not because it's going to last, not so you can make a name for yourself. Do it heartily. I think that's the King James uh, translation there. Do it with your whole soul as to the Lord and not unto man. You're not doing it to appease or appeal to other people. You're doing it for the glory of God with the strength that he gives you. Do it with your whole heart for the Lord. This word toil shows up in a variety of other places in the Bible as well. First uh, Timothy 4 says that we toil and strive for godliness. Well, that gives a Christian perspective to this as well, that one of the ways we invest our energy as Christians is that we devote ourselves to becoming like Christ. We put feet to the ground and work at seeking to become Christians. We are meant to be holy people. In a positional sense, we can say we are holy before God, but in a progressive sense, we are to continually be pursuing Christ-likeness. This is an implication of the gospel for us, is that we toil hard for spiritual growth. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, or you're just kind of contemplating these things from an outsider's perspective, perhaps, and saying, boy, I just want to zoom out, been here for a while, and it feels like we say these same kind of things over and over again, so let me just kind of zoom out. Why would I want to do this? Why would I want to pursue Christ like this? Why would I want to put effort into being a Christian and and walking in the Christian life? And let me be clear that if the Holy Spirit has not given you new life, what the Bible often calls regeneration, this does sound like a waste of time to want to put your effort in spiritually, to want to work hard to to take uh, spiritual steps forward. It feels, it is unnatural to have spiritual desire. It is only natural to live for yourself and to have no desire to pursue living for God. But when the Spirit works in your heart in such a way that you become alive and your heart starts beating after God and you start pulsing the Christian faith through your veins, and this happens by the Spirit's work, well, then the desire to be holy, to be like Christ is very natural It is what you desire. It is what you long and thirst after is to be like God. That's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You pursue what God has for you in Christ. 
The Spirit is the one who gives the desire, the motivation, and the ability to live a holy life. And so we respond to that Spirit-given desire by putting on our running shoes, spiritually speaking, and say, I'm going to do everything I can to grow spiritually and to be with other Christians in such a way that it compels me to want to live the Christian life and to read my Bible and to pray and, and participate in worship services. This means resisting temptation, not playing around with the garbage of sin on the world's playgrounds and not envying people who can live however they want. You know, that temptation can rise up in our hearts at times and say, boy, I wish I could live like that. And then Solomon brings us back to, but that person's going to die too. I'd rather walk with Christ for a short time as a pilgrim, as someone who feels like an outsider, than be someone who has all that the world can give and offer. And then at the end of life, it goes away. Which is why a famous missionary once said, totally blanking out. If somebody can help me out with what I'm thinking, read my mind here. Uh, only, so it's the, it ends with only what's done for Christ will last. Somebody start. Jenny, can you think of it? Um, thank you, Miriam. Only, what, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That was tremendous. Thank you. So if someone can give her a dollar or something to, to say thank you for, for that pinch hitting. It was excellent. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's what we as Christians need to conclude when we read a passage like this where we say, boy, this feels like a waste of time. All my work feels like a waste of time. Verse 18 says you're going to leave it. You're going to leave your work to the person who comes after you. It's the idea that you can't take anything with you when you die. But for us who are Christians, our hope springs eternal. Verse 23, talking about how hard it is to work and to deal with the sorrows of work. He says, all his days are full of sorrow. Why is your day full of sorrow? Let's just assume, again, that we're talking about someone like Solomon, who we could say is a modern-day CEO. His days are full of sorrow because he's dealing with the internal drama of people fighting and infighting and trying to climb up the ladder inside of, let's say, Starbucks. Let's keep talking about that for a second. But then you're also dealing with angry customers, and you're trying to reconcile your accounts so you can come out in the black and you keep your investors happy. And yes, maybe you get compensated nicely for all of this, but then you go to your warm bed and you lay there thinking about the same problems. The conversations you had, the meetings you're going to have the next day, whether you're actually going to be able to be in the black or whether you're going to stay in the red. And then you're going to die and someone's going to come after you, possibly less competent, possibly less wise, Everything that you ever did is going to be forgotten. This feels like a waste. And so Solomon then takes these problems and contemplates them now from a bit of a more spiritual perspective. And one of the reasons we say that is, if you haven't noticed, it's been a long time since he talked about God. You actually have to go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 13. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. That's the only time he's mentioned God in this whole book, these first two chapters, until verse 24. There's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his work, in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. There it is. There's some theology for us, some actual comment about God, that God is sovereign. There's been theology throughout this. Don't get me wrong, but actual 
truth about God. God is sovereign. He holds everything in his hands and he gives generously. Enjoying life as a gift is the path forward. So just to recap, seeking wisdom, seeking to live wisely feels like a waste of time. Working hard feels like a waste of time. Here, the conclusion of this passage and of these first two chapters, this first unit that he's designed in a very specific structure to make you think about work and wisdom and pleasure repeatedly, here's a conclusion to it. Enjoying life as a gift is the path forward. He says there's nothing better. He says this four times in this book, and this is the first one, verse 24. There's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment. And I believe he says that five times with a variety of of angles, but eat, drink, enjoy your life. Five times in this book, he wants you to be thinking, there might even be more, I'll have to double check, but he wants you to be thinking, this life is short. James 5, your life is a vapor. That's why, I mean, I said in all seriousness, if I die soon, let's sing that song at my funeral. I could die right now, and so could you. Your life is short. Your life is a vapor. What should you do? Enjoy it. You should take these gifts from God as blessings for you. We shouldn't just say, I'm a pilgrim passing through. Woe is me. My life is hard. Living the Christian life is hard. So I'm just going to be miserable till I die. Those first two statements are true. You are a pilgrim. You are passing through. The second statement is true as well as that one. The Christian life is often hard. You're dealing with sin. You're dealing with sorrow. You're dealing with your own doubts and guilt and grief and family problems and any myriad of thorny issues in your life, not to mention feeling like people don't listen to you because you're a Christian, because you're trying to live your faith out publicly in the public square, so to speak. Those two things are true. It's hard to be a Christian. You are a pilgrim passing through, but the third, the conclusion is not right. You should not just throw up your hands and say, this is all a waste of time. Solomon himself tells you here, don't do that. Enjoy life as a gift from God. He is the one who gives us all things to richly enjoy. 1 Timothy 4 says, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. That is not vanity. That is a way that you glorify God. Have a thankful heart for his generosity toward you. We should give thanks for the beauty and wonder of music and birds and baseball and relationships and donuts and books and deep dish pizza and hiking trails and snow and handwritten notes from a friend and train rides and marital intimacy and bonfires and feasts with family and lattes and board games and quality movies and on and on. All of those are good Gifts from God. Enjoy them richly. Can any of those gifts be abused and become idols? Yes. We should not worship any of those blessings. So there are ditches to fall off. You can fall in the ditch of, woe is me, life is miserable, I'm going to die. Or you can fall in the ditch of, I love this so much, I love baseball so much, I'm going to memorize stats, and I'm going to memorize the history. I'm going to watch all nine episodes of the Ken Burns DVD series, and I'm going to go on and on for baseball. That's probably taking it too far. But can you go to a game with friends and enjoy and cheer and feel like this is a good gift from God? Yes, and you can do that with all of these blessings. 
And so we as Christians can be the happiest people in the world because we know who gives us these gifts. And they're not a waste of time. And they're not all vanity in the sense that they remind us of the giver of the gifts. So Christians don't feel like life is all misery because you can't enjoy gifts. And I know we go through hard times and there are gray days like there are today. And it's not as comfortable as a 75 and sunny kind of day. Life is like that. But God gives us these good things richly to enjoy if they are received with thanksgiving, Paul told Timothy. These gifts are from God for us to enjoy while living a life that often doesn't make sense. But just because life doesn't make sense doesn't mean we should throw away these gifts. They are, as C.S. Lewis would say, just hints of how good life will be in the new heavens and new earth. At the very end of the Chronicles of Narnia, he said, the sweetest strawberry we tasted in this life tasted wooden compared to the strawberries there. And he gives these types of analogies of how good the true story is, how good the next world is. What he's saying is, take life as a gift. Enjoy what's before you now, but don't make them the ultimate thing. God is the ultimate one. He's the giver, and so we worship him, not the gifts. We worship the creator, not the creatures. And that's why it's not a waste of time to build Olympic villages, to build Legos, even if you sleep with them, and even if they crumble, you can build them again and have the same joy again. You can get up five, six, seven days a week and go to work and feel like I'm accomplishing something because I'm using the energy and the skills and the gifts that God has given me so I can serve other people. This is a good theology of work. This is what it means to live the Christian life in a fallen world. That's what Ecclesiastes tells you. It stinks to live in a fallen world. Yes, yes, it does. But as a Christian, someone who has a right theology of who God is and what God's gifts are, we can enjoy every day as a gift from his hand. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we pray you would make us joyful people who love life not because it lasts a long time or because people will remember us when we die, but because every day and every gift you give is from your hand. In Christ's name, amen.